The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we talk to Drew Dudley, P-E-S-E, Vice President at Dudley Denim Engineering and a lecturer at Texas A&M University about the state of structural engineering and higher education. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle, and I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural projects in California. And I got my undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's in structural engineering from UC San Diego. And I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager of our chemical anchoring portfolio in the U.S. and Canada. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas. I received my bachelor's in civil engineering from UT Austin and I'm currently an MBA candidate at Auburn. Before we introduce our guest, the Structural Engineering Channel is a free show, and our sponsors help keep it free, so we ask that you please support them. Now we would like to recognize our first sponsor for this episode. Aero Aggregates is the first vertically integrated manufacturer of an ultra-lightweight foamed glass aggregate in North America made from 100% recycled glass. This sustainable aggregate has bulk densities that are 80 to 90% lower than traditional fill, are free, draining, and non-reactive, and have a high friction angle. If your project site is challenged by resiliency concerns, raising grades over soft soils, sensitive utilities or structures, or the need to reduce lateral loads, foamed glass aggregate can often accelerate construction, reduce project costs, and offer green credits for LEED and Envision programs. Visit www.aeroaggregates.com to learn about this unique construction material. That's www.aeroaggregates.com. And I'd like to recognize our other sponsor, SkySiv. SkySiv is the first and only fully cloud-based structural analysis and design software suite. With a streamlined and efficient user interface, SkySiv users are able to complete their analysis and design projects in just a fraction of the time by using easy graphical inputs and tools, generate 3D structures for analysis, and automate design using the integrated modules. Eliminate the black box effect with extensive hand calculation reports for steel, concrete, wood, and cold-formed elements. And if you're stuck, ping the SkySiv live chat for quick help or share your file directly with the SkySiv support team. With monthly updates released directly to the platform, SkySiv users get to dive right into the new and exciting features without any manual updates, downloads, or maintenance fees. Everything offered by SkySiv is included in a single monthly subscription that's cost-effective for nearly every type of structural engineer. Check out SkySiv at skysiv.com forward slash EMI for your extended free trial today. That's skysiv.com forward slash EMI. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode. Drew Dudley is the Vice President of Dudley Denim Engineering, a structural engineering firm based in College Station, Texas. He is a passionate entrepreneur, professor, and structural engineer with a hunger for learning, a calling for teaching and mentorship, and motivation to make the world a better place. 
Drew is a licensed professional engineer in Texas, North Carolina, Virginia, New York, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, Georgia, Maryland, and Florida, and is also certified as a Model Law Structural Engineer, or MLSE, by the National Council of Examiners for Engineering and Surveying, or NCEES. In 2020, he won the National Society of Professional Engineering, NSDE, Young Engineer of the Year Award for the state of Texas and the Brazos chapter, and is part of the Engineering News Record, ENR, Top Young Professionals of 2019. Now let's jump into our conversation with Drew. Now it's time for this week's conversation with Drew Dudley. Drew, welcome to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Hey guys, glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. We just told our audience a little bit about your background, but if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more detail about your career journey and then ultimately what it is that you do today on a day-to-day basis at Dudley Dunham Engineering. I got my undergraduate at the University of Kansas and I'm going to talk about co-ops and internships, but unfortunately, I was a student athlete, played football at Kansas, so I didn't have an opportunity uh, during the summers to do a summer internship, um, except after I graduated, I did do one at Turner Construction, where I got to work on uh, Children's Mercy Park, where Sporting Kansas City plays in Kansas City. At that point, I knew I was going to go ahead and get my master's. I had been accepted in at Texas A&M, so that's where I went to go get my master's in civil engineering with a structural emphasis. And while getting my master's, I was able to get a uh, co-op position with Schultz Engineering, which is a civil engineering firm. And that's not because I didn't try to get it with structural, just wasn't able to you know, make it work at that time. But I think I learned a lot working for Joe Schultz at a civil engineering firm. Even today, that's useful information because their drawing sets look completely different from a structural engineering drawing set. There's lots of different conventions. Uh, When they draw sections, they have different vertical scales versus horizontal scales. So just being able to understand that um, is useful. I did do a summer internship during my master with Burns McDonald, where I was in their transmission and distribution group. We were doing substation design and also uh, transmission line, doing foundations for those. But I had my eyes set on working at uh, Walter P. Moore. They were heavily involved in the department at the time, um, and still are. They had done Cowboy Stadium, where, uh, Reliant Stadium, where the Texans play. And they also were involved in our capstone course. So I knew a couple of their people. So I was lucky enough to land a position there. And the first job that I got my feet wet on was the renovations to Kyle Field, which is a $500 million renovation in addition uh, to the football stadium there. It was a fast track steel construction. Probably never will be on another project like that in my life. Literally, I was reviewing the shop drawings while designing, you know, the very next section, which is going to be attaching into. That's how fast track it was. And there was a lot of design that was done in the submittals, which is what you're not supposed to do. But that's how it happened, just how fast, you know, that project went. I got to work on the KDISD football stadium, which is a cast and plays concrete stadium in Katy, Texas. Got to work on a very cool natatorium project, so indoor swimming pool um, for Cypher ISD. And it's kind of relevant to what we're doing now because we're doing a pretty large mass timber project. But on that one, that had eight foot deep blue lamb beams that were spanning over the natatorium with tongue and groove decking. So that was really my first heavy timber experience. And then I also got to do some K through 12, middle schools, high schools, stuff like that. 
So I was at Walter P. Moore for about four years, um, and then I went and worked for a smaller firm. And at that firm is where I learned how to do conventional wood framing construction because, you know, Walter P. Moore, we didn't really, we did masonry, but we didn't touch cold form steel or wood. So got to do that. Also, that's where learn multifamily construction, uh, doing garden style, podium, wrap style, apartment living. And then in 2017 is when I started Dudley Engineering on a hope and a prayer. Um, didn't have a client. Really started out with home builders, um, doing foundation design for custom homes. And again, I got to give a shout out to Joe Schultz because he has an established civil engineering firm in the market. He was referring me, you know, telling guys, you know, there's another structural engineer now. And so he got us on some bigger projects and, you know, just slowly built our way up from there. And the beginning of this year, we acquired the structural division of Dunham Engineering. And so that's why it went from Dudley Engineering to Dudley Dunham Engineering. And with that, we've brought in fire stations, a lot more K through 12 design, auto dealerships on top of the commercial and multifamily stuff that we were already doing. And as I mentioned, even now, we've got our largest project to date, which we're really excited about. It's a $32 million community center called Oscar Johnson Community Center that's going to be done with cross-laminated timber. So really looking forward to that, getting an opportunity to work on that one and keep expanding the type of products that we're working on. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now. And we're actually in a great position at Dudley Dunham right now, we've got a great team. And some of these guys, we were fortunate when we acquired the Dunham division that came with us and other people I've been working on for years. I know that Alexis, you know, okay. So okay. And I, when I was working at Walter P. Moore, he was an intern at Walter P. Moore and I have stayed in contact with him. I probably reach out to him every six months for the last four years, just trying to work on him, you know, like, okay, I think it'd be great if you came and joined me. I think it'd be great. And uh, somehow I fooled OK and he moved from Dallas down to College Station. But I think he's loving it and he's doing great. He's been here a little over six months and he's been promoted to a team lead position. And we have another young engineer, Ryan Sabruch, uh, who also got promoted to there. So at this point, I am not a project manager on any of our projects. These team leads, they manage their group of people. I mean, we're about 15 people total. But at this point, I'm primarily the principal in charge on a lot of these projects. So I do do the final reviews. They come ask me questions, but I, it allows me to focus more on business development. I focus a lot on our typical detail library because I do the reviews. So I see, you know, if we have repeat mistakes, let's go fix it in our template. because That's probably where it's happening. That way we can, you know, knock down on those. But that's where I'm at right now. And yeah, I've got a great team with us and I couldn't ask for anything better right now. We just, we need more time because we're all pretty young. Of all the things, I'm very, very thankful that OK is in a great place and that obviously he's kicking a lot of butt. I'm just disappointed he's no longer with us in Fort Worth, um, but uh, he's no fool. So you must have given him a really tempting offer to get him to come down there. And it sounds, I'm looking forward to learning more about what you guys have down there. That's kind of whatever the secret sauce is that's bringing in all these fantastic, talented engineers. I'm just fascinated about the breadth of not only structural engineering project types and different materials that you've had an opportunity to design with, but also even the the breadth of information you have about civil engineering, having had all those different, you know, being having some time in construction and having some time with residential and all these different facets of the engineering and built environment that are probably make you a better engineer because you have a respect for those different aspects of a project. 
And if I would add to that, the other thing that I think is pivotal is my dad is a general contractor. He's a commercial general contractor. So I grew up from the age of 12 working as a laborer and estimating. So I, and I also teach in the construction science department at Texas A&M. I think that makes me a better structural engineer. My mentor at Walter B. Moore, Bart Miller, focused on this. Like even on most design bid build projects, it's kind of the design team and the contractor naturally pitted against one another. But at the end of the day, we're trying to get a successful building build. If the contractor is successful, that's going to mean that we're successful. So we really push that attitude. And I think it helps that my whole life I've been hearing uh, my father complain about engineers that, you know, don't work with them when they come into a problem on a project. And so we try to take the mentality of let's try to reach a solution, not dig our heels in. Yeah, it sounds like a great career path too and great lessons. I know what your mindset is for the contractors. That's always great because like you said, end of the day, everyone's trying to get things done and the more uh, everyone can come together and try to help others solve each other's problems. Uh, everyone learns a lot and everyone's successful. I did want to switch over to some of the ASCE SEI committee work. I know you're a part of that. And specifically, the Board of Governors, they formed a committee for the reform of structural engineering education. I believe it's also called CROSSE. Can you tell us more about what that is and what exactly CROSSE is focused on? Yeah, I'd love to. And I'll probably butcher some dates and, you know, I won't get the exact quote, but we can probably put a link. They have a document that's out, which puts all this up there. But essentially in 2013, they came up with their 20 year plan. So in 2033, this is where they think the industry needs to be. And they focus on a few things, education being one of them. There was education, licensure, technology, globalization, innovation, and leadership. So these are the facets of the industry that we need to focus on because our industry is changing. Obviously, the technology is changing quickly. I mentioned fast track, but you know, fast track wasn't really a thing 50 years ago. Now it seems almost commonplace that we're doing projects like this. What I have focused on is the education one because I don't know, maybe it's because I'm in a college town. Um, I'm fairly passionate about it. I teach in higher education, but their main point that they're pushing for education is that over time, the universities have become much more research dominated. And I'm going to talk about this later, but research is extremely important to what we do in the industry because it pushes the envelope on the existing materials and system we have. So we understand them better. We can analyze them with less conservatism built into it. And they also create new materials, right? And that's extremely important. But at the same time, we've got to have people that understand what we have now and know how to apply it to a construction project. In higher education, there's just a strong emphasis for most of these tenure track faculty. They've got to bring in research dollars, research grants. They've got to bring this stuff in. And there's not a lot of focus on how good of instructor they are. So the instruction in my personal experience, and again, I talked to about eight other structural engineers coming into this interview because I wanted to make sure that I was not in a bubble, you know, because I had my own personal experience at certain institutions. A healthy exercise. Yeah. And me and OK, we talk about it and everyone in the office. But again, we could be in a vacuum. So we talked to I know everyone's probably familiar with Renz Hayes uh, out of Boston. So on the other side of the country and he had a similar experience. You know, it's not exactly the same, but he agreed with most of the points that I brought up, but I guess my solution and SEI has also come out with the solution and that CROSI document 
is that we need to start introducing more adjunct professors. And by adjunct, they mean experienced design professionals, people that are practicing PEs into the industry so that there is that the practical knowledge along with pushing the research envelope. So I'm trying to picture that too, because I've been to, you know, the school systems too, because are schools, universities mostly focused on research? I guess, how would we bring in like adjunct professors? I'm kind of wondering how we would incentivize that for universities. I'm guessing there's a reason why, you know, they make money from the research, et cetera, but how do they get adjunct professors to, I guess, want to work? It is a great question. And I've been in higher education now for six years. Before I taught at uh, Texas A&M, I taught at the University of Houston And six years in, I still don't really know the answer to that question. (laughs) I went and had lunch with my department head uh, to pick his brain and he explained it to me. But, you know, still, I don't know if it's sunk in completely. I just know like he re-emphasized that that is a huge part because some of it, you know, like when a student pays tuition, a lot of that does go to the university level, not the individual department or college. And then they get some of that back. But there's a big gap that they have to make up and they have to fill that gap with research. Now, I do think that there are situations, like in my situation this semester, I'm teaching a class of 200 students, and I won't go through like what the tuition rate is, but it's fair to say they're probably doing pretty good off of me. That's one thing that I will talk about is, as an adjunct faculty, I do make it a priority, and by that I mean if I have a work commitment that comes up and it interferes with my class, you know, I'll tell them I can't make that commitment. I treat it just as similar as I would a client, but I have seen that be abused at the different institutions I'm in. And it's natural because work, you know, usually is going to take precedence. So there is a lot of canceling classes or, you know, having to somebody substitute in. So you kind of get off track on the lesson plans, but I don't think that adjunct professors, like it's a, you fit them in and automatically it works. It's got to be people that can make a commitment to it and that are passionate about it. I say, again, I would talk to Renz, talk to all the other engineers I talked to. Most of us had one practicing engineer in our experience through higher education. And 100% of us said that was our favorite professor that we had. I'm talking to practicing engineers, so we're going to be biased. Right. If I talk to somebody that is focused on research, they may say it was one of the tenured faculty that was also focused on research. But I don't know the exact breakdown, but I would it's probably 90 percent of us going to practice, 10 percent stay in research. So I have to ask, you mentioned that you are teaching a class of 200, which to me does not sound like an upper level course. It sounds like a more introductory or intermediate course. Is that correct? Or what course are you teaching? It's a senior level course. I don't know if it was the corona you know, that led it to this, but usually it's about 100 students. I don't know what happened there, but yeah, 200 students this semester. Where's the vision? I, I completely agree, and I think that there is a total value to having practicing instructors in the undergraduate level. You teach an upperclassman course now. Do, is that where you kind of see that where this difference in experience could be most complementary to the existing lectures that are already there? Or is it at the upperclassman level? Do you see where there's opportunities throughout the entire engineering degree plan where this could be beneficial? How would you want to put those two together to where they're complementary? That was one point where when I was talking to these eight other structural engineers where we did kind of differ and there's even one who only had an undergraduate, didn't get a master's. And so that was a good perspective for me to get. Because when I was thinking about it, I'm focusing on a master's level. But his thing was he wishes 
that we can take a civil engineering degree with a structural emphasis, but you still probably have to take wastewater, you know, circuits. There's a lot of other general engineering classes that you still take. Basically, what he was saying is he wishes that he could have focused, you know, taken some master's level courses, if need be, that focused on structures. I don't disagree with that. I will say that uh, SEI has explicitly addressed that in the same document I'm talking about, and they do not recommend pulling structural engineering out of civil engineering. So I don't necessarily agree with that, but I haven't heard their reasoning for that, and I'd be willing to listen to it, and I don't know where that's coming from. Had different exposure to ASCE and SEI as two separate entities at both you know the state and national level, and I think part of the SEI vision that is shared with uh, NCSEA and CASE, they're all looking to develop a similar vision. And so I couldn't tell you what the reasons are myself, but I do know that when they send, you know, years developing these visions, they're, they're trying to do what's best for the industry. So I'm curious to know what the reasoning is myself. And I guess an example at the master's level I would give, the one class I made a B in in my master's, so maybe that's why I'm holding a grudge against it, but advanced mechanics of materials where we learned about tensors. And to be honest, I still don't know what a tensor is, which is probably why I got to be in that class. But I've never heard tensor in practice. I don't think I'm going to use a tensor. That's an example of I wish that there was more of a practical focus. And maybe the solution there is at the master's level, you allow people to take more of a practice versus a research path in their career. And some institutions do have this. You can get a master's of engineering or a master of science. I did a master's of engineering. I still, you know, had to take advanced mechanics and materials, which to me wasn't beneficial to my career. I can definitely relate to that, Drew. So for me, I'm in the West Coast, and I definitely see both sides because I got my undergrad. I actually got my undergrad at, at Cal Poly Pomona, and they kind of have like a brand of, you know, we train their mindset is training engineers for the industry. And, and they do. A lot of our professors, they were required to have their PE. So you couldn't teach at Cal Poly if you didn't have your PE, if you weren't working at least a couple of years in the industry. So from that point of view, it was really practical. You know, all of our like wood, concrete, steel classes, we were designing things per code and we had design projects all the time. But then when I went to my master's, I definitely saw that side of very theoretical I was there for like three quarters in. I didn't design a single beam. It was a lot of, like you were saying, the tensors. That's why I laughed at that because I was still like, what's a tensor? Then, yeah, going through all that stuff. But it was like, definitely don't regret it because you do get to see all the theory and the reasoning behind the codes because the codes come from the research. So uh, really great just getting both sides of it. But if you just went to a theoretical school, I could definitely see where you might lag behind, especially in terms of if you go into a firm, a lot of training, a lot of self-studying to get caught up with everything. So if more schools could do that, I don't know how they do that. I think that's a big question. But I you know there, there are some schools that are currently doing that, but they're not common at all in the industry. So what items would I want included in a more practical course? One thing that I find that most let's say 90% of graduating engineers and even some practicing engineers don't really understand diaphragms. And diaphragms are greatly important to load path. So those are the two that I kind of hung on to. And when I was asking all these other structural engineers, you know, what did you learn about diaphragms uh, when you were in college? Because again, from my personal experience, I can tell you, I never heard the word. And when my principal asked me after I had done my first ETABS model doing a lateral analysis, 
you know, like, what did you do for the chord forces in your diaphragm? Uh, say what? Like, I didn't know either one of those words that you just said. And then the other one is load path. So I know I heard the word load path, but I don't think that we focused on it enough because to me, that's one of the more fundamental things that we do is follow that load path till eventually it gets down into the earth, especially when we're looking at interfaces between different materials. So we do look at load path in like steel class, like we look at steel connection design, right? How do you transfer from the beam to the column? But we don't ever look at how do you transfer that shear force out of your steel deck into your CMU shear wall? That level of detailing and making sure that you have a continuous load path, that was not covered. And that's something that I wish was covered because we focus hard on that with bringing in our new graduates and interns. That's kind of our crash course is load path and diaphragm because that's where you can have big mistakes, right? If you're not following that stuff. I guess what are some things that they're trying to do or trying to implement in terms of, you know, getting this across maybe? Are there any like measures or actions that the committee is trying to take that they're running into problems or I know it's like, I wish we could have it, but then that's always the big question, right? How do we properly implement it? What are we trying? Do you have any suggestions on what to do on that? I know the two concrete steps that they're taking right now is one is they are going to start pushing department heads to bring in more adjunct faculty. And number two they do have a program called ASCE Exceed, which basically teaches you how to be a better instructor. And that comes with an accreditation. So I would like to see like even ABED accreditation be tied to, you know, do you have a certain number of lecturers that have this accreditation? Because it goes through like these are the, you know, pedagogy that really the students can latch on to. The third one, like I think they're going to come out with more. They were supposed to come out with that in the summer of 2020. But, you know, some things happened in the world. So I doubt that they really got to meet as often as they wanted to. So I haven't seen that come out yet. You mentioned that this Crossy Committee was created in 2013 and the goal was 2033. So we're coming up on 40% of our project timeline. Do you think that they've made 40% of the, are we on track? Have we made 40% of the progress expected or, you know, do we still have a ways to make up? Are we ahead of schedule? So in my opinion, I think they've hit the nail on the head. I think they've identified those two issues that which I think are would be very beneficial. I'll go into this is my next point about in education. We focus a lot on analysis and design, but not a lot on how do you get that into construction documents, which ultimately that's all that matters. Because if it's not on the plans, it doesn't matter how good your analysis model is. So I think that they've got a great analysis. They've got a great solution. Now, how do we push this to the universities? And I don't think they've come up with a solution on how they plan to do that. But I think ABET accreditation is where it would be the easiest because all the colleges care about that. Just a little bit. Got to get some students to the door, right? And they want that accredited engineering degree if they're going to be a PE one day. Continue on with this conversation about a well-rounded education and what makes a really well-prepared engineer to, to enter the workforce. I know you have a pretty strong position on the uh, integration of internships and co-op positions for college students. They have that experience and they get a little bit of a leg up on some of those employment opportunities. In your opinion, is it better to do a co-op with one company or multiple internships with several different companies? I think that it would really come down to a case-by-case basis. I would say that more often it's probably going to lean towards it's going to be beneficial to have multiple different experiences. But the only reason I don't say that for everyone that's got to be the solution because 
you may just, the first one you go with may be a perfect fit for you. They're doing projects that you're passionate about and their culture is just, fits like a glove with you. For most people, I think that one, you need to figure out what type of projects are you going to get passionate about? I wasn't passionate about doing transmission and substation design. Some people are, right? I wanted to work on big stadiums and then I did a big stadium and then I was like, well, that was cool. But now I'd rather be meeting the owner. Like I wanted more of an intimate level at that point. Different things tick for different people. And then also it's cultural fit is a big one. I've worked now at three different companies uh, full-time and the cultures were very different at all three of these companies. And that's something that you can't, it's hard to see based on looking at their website or looking at their LinkedIn page. What is the culture really like, right? Because people can put out good marketing campaigns, but I think you actually have to be there for a while. And even in an interview, you know, a two hour interview for both parties, it's hard to really judge if it's going to be a great fit. And that's one that we are doing. In fact, uh, we're bringing in an architectural engineering student from Oklahoma State University, just bringing her in for one week during the winter break. And I think I found her via LinkedIn. I saw that she was engaged in the industry, which told me, man, she's passionate. So I reached out to her. We interviewed her, you know, a Zoom interview. And we just, to get to know her and let her get to know us, um, we're doing just a one-week internship, which is really just a really long paid interview. It's what it's going to end up being. But to me, like, I think she's a rock star, so we're trying to land her. But at the same time, you can't fake it for a week, right? You can fake it for an interview, but can you fake it for a week? So that's my thoughts on it. And compare contrasting your very multifaceted internship history and the ability to kind of be at different firms. I, in throughout college, had my obligatory summer with TxDOT. So I worked for this, the state and that clearly wasn't a good fit. And I think I always preach that there's equal value in learning what you don't like as much as what you do like. So, you know, I spent that summer and I learned a lot of valuable pieces of engineering wisdom and and knowledge that I wouldn't have otherwise got. I went to a private international environmental firm and I learned that I really enjoyed being in a big firm, but I, environmental engineering was not for me. And then I I went into bridge design and it was the closest thing in practice and in design that I, that felt closest to home. But again, it was one more step where I said, this is closer and I like where we're going here, but there's still something missing. And it's important to have those different experiences because there's no experience where you learn nothing. So you always come out having grown in some aspect, but having those different abilities to experience culture and cultural fit is something that, um, you know, our younger listeners who may not have had an internship or have had a couple are starting to learn about and starting to see, you know, do I jive with these people? Does their mission, the way they like to get work done, you know, do they stop the clock at 40 hours or do they max it out to 80, you know, and, and it depends on what you're willing to give and what is uh, most valuable to you. And for our listeners who listened to our last episode, I know uh, Drew has mentioned a couple of times, Renz talked about determining what your personal values are and making sure that they align with the company that you're looking for. That's always a good reflective exercise to see if you fit with the next place that you're looking at. Public, private, small, large companies, a lot of the cultures are very different. So I also encourage, you know, while you're a student, try to get as many internships as you can, see what the different companies are like, because sometimes it's not uh, the work that you're doing. It might be like the way the environment is or the way the company culture is. So always encourage experimenting with those when you can. Drew, for students that are looking for co-ops or internships, do you have any tips or tricks or advice that you can give them? It's competitive, but what are some things that could help them out? 
I mean, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. So when I see other, especially young students that are engaged in industry and, you know, they're engaged in the right things, right? They're like, they're focused on structural engineering and you can just tell that it's something that have a passion for that one that puts them over for me. They don't have to have it because most of them don't get on LinkedIn at that point, but that's definitely a nudge in my direction. The other thing is we always are going to check references no matter what. And we put more stock usually in the references. And let's say it's a um, somebody who's coming from experience, not a new grad. We would like to talk to one of their coworkers just because most often their boss is not going to give you the full picture due to whatever reasons. But so we always try and do that. So have a good list of references that you know that you can rely on. To me, that's the biggest thing. We put a lot of stock in checking, back checking the references. Obviously, we do the, you know, the interview, but again, you're only meeting with somebody for a couple hours. So we do rely on that. For students coming out, we usually talk to their professors. If I can, I try to find somebody that they were in a group project with. Because to me, that's where the it hits the road. Did they pull their weight? on that project or were they coasting and letting the rest of the team pull up the slack? Because I want the person that was, you know, at the forefront, definitely pulling their weight because everything we do here is done in a team environment. So that's also big for us, for the new grads. We get a lot of questions. I know Matt certainly does on his YouTube channel about the technical skills and the technology skills and the software skills that are needed to be hireable and uh, attractive talent to be brought into a new firm. And everything that Drew just shared has nothing to do with that. I mean, obviously, you want to make sure they know how to calculate things and and understand basic (laughs) structural engineering. That's what they got the degree for. But two things I just picked up from what you said is don't burn bridges. You have to be able to communicate with other people, to work with other people. Teamwork and having integrity in your work are huge. And I'm super excited that you actually call coworkers instead of just bosses, because I think you made a very good point about, you know, your past boss may not give the full transparent picture and a coworker certainly has less on the line and is probably going to be a little bit more forthcoming with information. So yeah, it's always important to make sure that you maintain your relationships and you play nice with others because it doesn't matter what firm you're in. You always have to play nice with others. And to any of our listeners who are in college, you probably feel like you are in, you know, this organization or in a engineering school of 100, 500,000 students and that there's tons of schools out there with engineers, but the structural engineering community across the US, it's a tight-knit community and it's it, the pond's only so big. So you've got to really mind your P's and Q's and make sure that you're always leaving with a positive interaction. The other piece I, I wanted to thank you for is having a LinkedIn profile. Um, I do a lot of, of outreach with high school and middle school students And I'm actually teaching them and like helping them get together their first LinkedIn profile and learning how to, that you follow people you don't know and that you you connect with someone who is a colleague instead of just following everyone because they're used to like a tweeting culture where you follow someone who tweets. It's interesting because they haven't had to use a LinkedIn professional platform before, but there is no greater time than now if you do not have a LinkedIn profile to start one and start cultivating content that is going to make you a better professional and following people that you emulate and admire and want to listen to and want to see what they're putting out there and uh, contribute your own content when you feel comfortable in doing so. I look to connect with people on LinkedIn that are contributing insightful comments here and there or who are posting an article that is helpful to the way I work and being a better contributor myself. So it's an easy free tool that you should use to be a better professional. Yeah, I agree with that. 
in my class, I give extra credit uh, for them to set up their LinkedIn profile. And I encourage them to connect with your fellow students because that's one, I didn't have a LinkedIn profile in college. I didn't start it until really I started looking at business development, which is where most people kind of really get into LinkedIn when they're on the business development side. But I wish I would have because most of my classmates are at potential clients. They're working at development firms or construction firms. And I wish I had done a better job, you know, staying in contact with those folks. And LinkedIn is one way to do that. I do want to dispel one myth. I'm not sure if this is commonplace, but I have heard some engineers in different industries and geographies and different companies who have been kind of told this myth, whether in their company or outside of it, that says that if you have a LinkedIn, it's because you're looking for a job. And that doesn't have to be the case at all. Many of my colleagues will tell you I'm never leaving Hilti and I don't plan like they're going to have to take my job from my cold, dead hands when I'm 85. I'm never leaving Hilti, but uh, I have a LinkedIn and I use it actively all the time and I don't use it as an opportunity to get new jobs. And you should not feel intimidated by your employer ever to not have a LinkedIn profile because there's any sense of disloyalty to your firm. If anything, it should show it should demonstrate to your firm that you are eager to connect with others to build community, to learn from other firms, what's working better, what's not, how can we take that back and make ourselves better? So if you ever feel that kind of intimidation, you should very quickly dispel that that myth with your leadership. It's a platform for learning. LinkedIn's not paying us, I swear, but I'll plug LinkedIn for one other thing is, you know, I mentioned these eight structural engineers. I reached out to them all through LinkedIn and that's, you know, just direct messaging and they got back to me and they got back to me very quickly. So, you know, kudos to them. Everyone in the industry is, is uh, interested in this subject, but that's where I, I connected with them. That's where I usually try to identify who are other, you know, leaders in the structural engineering industry and then I will follow them. So that's also been good, but uh, we use it a lot for recruiting ourselves, just seeing people at other companies that are engaged. But we're even out of those eight guys, we want to start a group, call it a, a Google you know, group. It'll be our own little personal inch tips. Matt's probably, are you familiar with ingetips.com? I know that one. Alexis, you? Yeah. Yes. Familiar, not an expert. Inch tips has a lot of good information on it, but I will tell you that uh, you got to watch yourself on the internet. On the project at Kyle Field, we were having a dispute with the contractor on a particular issue. I posted a very generic post about this issue, but like anybody that's familiar with it knows which project I'm talking about. And my handle was like Texting USA or something. Like, wasn't too hard to figure out who I was. And the next morning, I got an email from the contractor with a snippet like, "Hey, Texting USA." So it doesn't look the most professional when you're posting to an internet chat board about a question, but there are smart people on there and they did post uh, some links to some documents, which kind of backed up our position, but still, yeah, just watch it. Maybe be more discreet with your username when you're not on LinkedIn. Yeah. More discreet with your username. Yeah. For sure. I know it's yeah, LinkedIn free marketing, but um, it's interesting that you, not, you didn't even mention like your resume. So it's like, it kind of shows where the industry's going. Professionals are looking on LinkedIn. And just like you found out, Drew, it's you found someone that was really passionate about it on LinkedIn and you reached out to them. Even for students, I encourage them to, they can find people, professionals that they just want, want to find out about the industry because, you know, they're in a theoretical university. They don't know what it's like. It's very easy if you like find professionals and just ask for like a 15 minute Zoom interview, just informational interview, just to Ask them what the industry's like, what their job's like. Maybe that's even a good way to get a feel for their culture. 
And during the pandemic, you know, they're in their office, they're not going anywhere. So it's like a really easy ask that everyone knows how to use like Zoom now. So I also encourage students for that. But thanks for giving that insight, because I think that, you know, it's not just resumes anymore. It, it is your, your profile and even social media. So that's really interesting. Drew, I think that just about does it for all the questions. I know this was really interesting. I know it went on a little longer, but I think that's great because I could keep asking more questions. But, you know, thanks so much for being on and I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, and I really appreciate what both you guys are doing. Matt, you put out great videos, which I, I push a lot of people to take a look at those videos. And obviously, Alexis, I think it's great that you're here as well. Uh, so people can see that it's not just, you know, males in the industry. So I really appreciate what both you guys are doing. Thanks, Drew. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, really. This is awesome. Before we finish up here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard Group USA. Do you have projects where you're faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all of the good sites are taken and you are always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wick drains, earthquake drains, vibrostone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid impact compaction, and soil mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroupusa.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 35, as well as any links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Lastly, before we go, I want to let you know about EMI's new show, This Week in Civil Engineering, also known as TWICE. TWICE is a 10 to 20 minute weekly audio and video podcast hosted by practicing civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers, bringing listeners the latest in industry news. We recognize that most of us don't have the time to read up on all the news we'd like to anymore, and soon we won't have to, thanks to TWICE. Go check it out at www.twice.news. That's T-W-I-C-E dot news. And make sure to subscribe to the show to get your weekly updates. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. 
For information on EMI's People and Project Management Skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.